like to think that we're rational human beings, right? I mean, you know, occasionally we might make a little bit of a slip up in something we buy or maybe someone we once dated or someone we voted for. But generally, we think of ourselves as rational. And for a long time, economists said, in the market, people act rationally. They will maximize their benefit. They will do what it takes to do as well as they can in the conditions that are presented to them. But as time went on, um, some other people looking at, at the same set of circumstances said, well, maybe that's not entirely the case. Maybe sometimes people don't behave entirely rationally. And two names you maybe have heard of lately because Michael Lewis has just written a book about them, Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky, came up with a theory um, called prospect theory, which said that, you know, actually, people um, hate losing more than they like winning. And so they're going to assume that gains and risks are valued differently. Um, there's also, so Kahneman wrote the book Thinking Fast and Slow, and then he said, okay, so you've got the part of the brain that reacts strongly to, and emotionally to narrative, and you've got the rational part of the brain that thinks through a situation, but sometimes it's overridden by the emotional part of the brain. So then are we irrational beings? Well, then there's another way of thinking about this, and our speaker tonight is going to help us think about that, and that is maybe we're looking at this whole issue with too narrow of a frame, of a time frame. Maybe if we think about how human beings make decisions in the arc of evolutionary time, humans over the course of their existence have actually been pretty rational when it comes to figuring out how do I continue to survive? How do I pass on my genes in a world that is full of variables that I don't know and that might be kind of dangerous? So, um, Jamie Holland Jones, or Jamie Jones, is uh, not only a former fellow at CASBIS, he's coming at this question as an associate professor in Stanford's Department of Earth System Science. He's uh, also uh, a research scientist at Imperial College in London in a new multidisciplinary center called Grand Challenges in Ecosystems and the Environment. He is a biological anthropologist and a biodemographer, and I will pass it over to you. Take it away. The conversations at the interval take place a few times a month at the Long Now Foundation's bar, cafe, and museum venue, The Interval, in San Francisco. This podcast is brought to you by Stripe, a company that's working to build the economic infrastructure of the internet. They help people start internet businesses and accept online payments from customers all over the world. Thanks so much, Mary Kay. Uh, great to be here. Thank you for everyone for, for having me. Um, I've just gotten over just a killer flu, uh, so hopefully my voice will last the night. Um, so today I'm going to talk to you about actually fairly relatively new interests of mine, um, which have to do with applying evolutionary and ecological ideas to economics. The interest was piqued by my attempt to understand the evolution of the human life cycle. Our, basically our reproductive biology, the timing of our, of our events, uh, of our life events, and uh, our, our life cycles are pretty weird. 
and I'll, I'll show you a little bit of the specifics of, of um, how weird they are. Uh, and so explaining them carries some challenges to it. And it turns out that it spills over into thinking about, about some of these economic problems. Uh, I'm going to bring together a bunch of different disciplines, population biology, economics, anthropology, decision theory, some operations research. It can be a little hairy at times, but I think the big picture is pretty straightforward, and uh, I, I, hope, I hope you get it. So we're going to start with a little exercise. No one warned you of this, but take the average of these five numbers. I'll give you a second. You got it? Everybody come up with two? Who came up with two? Everybody come up with what if I were to tell you that I actually came up with a different number? My number was actually about a quarter of that. Okay, just hold that in your mind for a second. But what did we do to calculate the average of two? We took the values that you were given, right, those, four, those five numbers, and we weighted them by a, a weighting factor, in this case, a probability. There are five numbers. They have equal probability of, of combining to, to form this average. And so we weight the probability by the, the value, right? And we can write down a mathematical formula for that. We've got a value, we've got a, a weighting, okay? And the weighting happens to be a probability. In my mind, I'm much more worried about small values than I am about big values. And so I used weights that looked like this. Now notice that I put 40% of the weight on that zero, and I put three-tenths of a percent on that five. And that gives me a much smaller number. And the equation, it's a perfectly legitimate equation. I have a value, I have a weight. This weight happens to be a nonlinear transformation of, the, of the, the probability, okay? I'm perfectly able to do that. That's okay, right? There's nothing magical about a mean. The problem is they're like, there are literally an infinite number of ways to do this. So how do we know what the right one is? Because it turns out that people actually seem to, as, as crazy as it may sound, People seem to do this in their brains and not that simple mean. This is exactly what, what Kahneman and Tversky showed. So formal rationality depends on optimality models, okay? And subject to constraints, an individual tries to maximize something. That, that thing that they're maximizing is called an objective function. And optimization is a really powerful tool. I use it all the time. Uh, but the solution to an optimization problem depends critically on what you're optimizing. If, you, if you're optimizing the wrong thing, using the wrong objective function, your, your results are going to be wildly off, okay? Um, so uh, the, the, the assumption uh, of, of sort of orthodox e economics, this is the thing that people are maximizing, is a thing called expected utility. And in this context, the expectation means an average, right? It, it, expected mathematical expectation is just a arithmetic average, okay? Um, so, this, probably the central argument, I'm gonna give it away early on, uh, uh, the central argument of my work is that the objective function that the human brain has evolved to maximize is not the simple one of known probabilities and known values modified, but, but really it's one that's modified to deal with the exigencies of, of uncertainty. When we use this objective function, one that, that deals with uncertainty, Many of the results that seem irrational under the, under the orthodox model turn out to be very sensible and possibly, if I dare say it, rational. All right, so when we think about economic maximization, optimization, 
We frequently use a market basket model. Uh, the, um, the, the Bureau of Labor Statistics Consumer Price Index, right? It's a, we're, this is how we track inflation. And we think of this as a, as a collection of, of, of goods that people need, the typical American needs, uh, food and housing and transportation and education. Uh, I'm going to ask you to bear in mind for this talk, and this may be a, a stretch for some people. Uh, I don't know. We're, we're in San Francisco. We're, we're open-minded. Um, that uh, we are biological entities. Humans are biological entities, and that we're subject to the laws, to physical laws. And I'm going to suggest that thinking about humans as biological entities, subject to the laws of, of, of selection, uh, is, it changes the way we think about decision-making. To a biological entity, okay, uh, economic decisions are not just arbitrary preferences. You, you, you know, this is the way uh, an economist typically thinks about, about uh, preferences. It's, it's an ordering of your, your preferences over, over outcomes in the world. Um, it turns out that the rules for a living organism, which is anchored in the, in the present and is subject to the force of selection, and selection is extremely averse to extinction, these rules are quite different from the abstract formal rationality that, that's typically employed in, in orthodox e economics. So I'll show how the all-important need to avoid extinction in a world that's at best incompletely known uh, has profound implications for utility and for rationality uh, and, and for risk preferences. Uh, by ignoring the condition of existential uncertainty, the theory of rational decision-making has developed distorted expectations of how organisms working in its own best, best interest should, should behave. So market basket. The kind of market basket I tend to think about is not pushing grocery, a, a grocery cart down a supermarket aisle, but it's about thinking about, should I hunt for lizards? Right? These are goanna lizards in the western desert of Australia. Or should I hunt for kangaroo? And I should warn you, it's, that's a kangaroo. It's under the, the coals of a fire. Um, it's been hunted by, by some, some Mardu folks in Western Australia. And this is work that I've actually done with my longtime collaborators, Rebecca and, and Doug Bird, here, uh, where we've asked exactly that question. Why should you hunt for a kangaroo when 85% of the time you're going to fail? You're literally going to come home with nothing. Whereas when you go for the goanna, you always come home with something, all right? So that's an economic decision, all right? Another type of economic decision is, should I plant maize or should I plant yams? These are pictures taken from a, a research site where I work in, in Western Uganda. Or maybe I should forgo planting, uh, planting these crops altogether and just plant a cash crop like coffee and buy my food. These are the types of economic problems that, that, that got me interested in, in a lot of these questions about how people make uh, decisions under, under risk and uncertainty. So I'm going to very quickly probably do a great injustice to it, give you a, a very bare-bones introduction to rational choice theory. It's, and I'm going to emphasize three main components to it. The first is that the maximization of expected utility. Okay? Utility is a, is a sort of aggregator function that we use to average uh, the values of, of variable outcomes of, of, of choices. Right? So, um, I'll, I'll leave it at that. The savage axioms, they're not like really vicious axioms, right? They're, they're actually named after this character to the second from the left, Jimmy Savage. And they're essentially, it's the axiomization of formal maximization of expected utility. It's about consistency of preferences. 
And the last thing that I tend to emphasize is, a, uh, is constant time preferences. If I prefer to have something today versus tomorrow, I should prefer in the same way to have it in nine days versus 10 days, because a day is a day, right? And that actually isn't the way people behave, but that's the way we expect them to behave under this model. So there were a lot of critics right away from within economics of this, this sort of uh, rational theory uh, uh, paradigm. And they pointed out inconsistency, uh, inconsistencies in the model almost right away. The, the model was really developed right after World War II. A lot of the, the uh, criticisms came out in the late 40s, early 50s. But the, uh, the, the criticisms didn't really catch on until these two characters came along, right? And this is Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky, uh, who Mary Kay talked about. Um, and I'm going to, again, probably do a great injustice to them, but I'm going to say the three big things that come out of this work, right? That utility is not expected in the sense that it's not a simple average. Risk accounting is nonlinear, just like the little exercise we did. The savage axioms are violated consistently. One might say they're violated savagely and, and repeatedly, right? People do this all the time. They're inconsistent. And that time preferences are inconsistent. We actually, uh, we prefer the immediate much more than, you know, tomorrow but a year out, a decade out, we're kind of indifferent to, to time differences, okay? Um, and this is a very robust uh, thing that we've, we've found a, across various human groups. Um, Mary Kay mentioned uh, Kahneman and Tversky. Uh, their, their, their big sort of centerpiece is this thing called prospect theory. Uh, we work with their update to prospect theory, which is from a 1992 paper. It isn't as well known, but it's it's a better paper in the sense that they've fixed some holes in the mathematical model. Um, cumulative prospect theory. And the basic point is that uh, this is, uh, if we take all the, yeah, the laser pointer doesn't work. If we take all the outcomes and rank them from worst to best, when we make a decision, when we try to make a decision, uh, we should, if we're following the expected utility theory, rational model, we should follow this straight line. Okay, that's the line of equal weighting. Okay, what in this, in this cumulative model, what we see that they do, in fact, is that they overweight the bad outcomes. And the way this was originally framed is that, is that you're very loss averse, right? We underweight the sort of medium gains. This is, this is prospect theory the way we, the way we think of it. Um, and it may look a little different than the, than the plot you've, you've seen. This is the cumulative version. Uh, overweighting of losses, underweighting of, of moderate gains. Okay, so I'm about to really get going, but what, I, what I'll argue today is that a biological entity trying to maximize it, its fitness will behave very much in the manner that behavioral econ economists say is irrational, right? Because according to the sort of the common thinking right now, this is not the way you should do it. You should follow the straight line. You shouldn't follow the bendy line. But when, when we... Um, apply these evolutionary ideas, what we find is that the best outcome, if you're maximizing fitness in choosing economic variables, uh, is, to non is to use non-expected utility, is to violate many of the axioms of rational choice, the savage axioms, and to have inconsistent time preferences. In very systematic ways, by the way. It's not just you're willy-nilly about your time preferences. Um, 
These behaviors keep, them al keep animals alive and allow their lineages to persist under the right environmental conditions and to expand uh, when conditions are right. In short, they will behave very rationally when we consider an evolutionary uh, objective function. And I've shown you a pair of scissors here. So rather than the, uh, use a mathematician's axiomatic rationality, people use a procedural rationality. And Herbert Simon, the polymath economist, uh, likened this to uh, a pair of scissors. That you have to understand both blades to understand how the scissors work. There are the computational compa capacities, the laws of logic that, that our brains are employing, but there's also the task environment. And if we don't understand how the two work together, we're going to get it wrong. We're not going to understand how the scissors work. Okay, so there's a real paradox. This is Homer Ergaster. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't think that was funny. But uh, this is very serious for them, right? They've, they've landed dinner. Um, uh, this is Homer Ergaster from the, uh, from the Spitzer um, uh, Hall of, of Human Evolution at the American Museum of Natural History. And they represent a real paradox. So this is really the first like, real member of our genus, the genus Homo, about 1.8 million years ago on the East African savanna a very unlikely colonizer of the planet, right? With this weird, awkward, bipedal ape, kind of slow, right? Not very strong. Somehow, this population managed to colonize the planet and reproduce itself in the wink of a geological eye, 1.8 million years. This is a very rapid time for a species to diversify like this. They've come to occupy the entire planet, 7.3 billion people, um, and, and dominate every terrestrial biome, um, or nearly every terrestrial biome. These, these are crop circles in Saudi Arabia, incidentally. Um, when you go from a, a, the very small population that we had at 1.8 million years ago to the present 7.5 billion or so, uh, it means that on average our ancestors made very good decisions. So this raises the paradox. If as the behavioral econo economists would have, it, have us uh, believe, we run this incredibly flawed software that can't make a rational decision. How is it that we got this incredible degree of biological success? By just about any measure, we are a successful species biologically. So where does it come from? How is it possible that a species that's so defective in its ability to generate sound decisions can be so incredibly successful? All right. So this is where I'm going to bring the evolution in. And this is just a sampling of some of the books that tell us that we're irrational. There are lots more, right? You can, I, it's kind of a cottage industry right now, right? Um, all right, so I've got a little secret for you before we go any further. Hopefully, I won't offend anyone too badly. So at least in its orthodox format, economics is not a science, okay? <laughs> um, now, I will say... Behavioral economics and, and a bunch of experimental developmental e economics has really taken great st strides to change this. Um, but there's still quite a bit of baggage. Standard economic analysis starts from a series of axioms, like the savage axioms. Primitive assumptions that are taken to be self-evident, and, and then we derive expectations of how a rational agent should behave. In a word, economics, orthodox economics, is normative. Theory in economics serves the purpose of explaining how actors should behave, okay? Science, in contrast, is what we call positive. It starts with observations about the world, and it attempts to explain the world as inferred through the observed data. 
Theory plays the role of generating deductive, deductive hypotheses, which can then be confronted with, with additional empirical observations. Okay? So we start with saying, how do people actually behave? And let's explain that, rather than how, do pe how people should behave. And then say, God, they don't behave that way. How weird. Right? Um, so let's think about the human organism and some of the fundamental adaptations. I'll first talk about human adaptations to uncertainty, something that I think is central to being a human being, being a human organism, and why this is important. I'll then take us briefly through the basics of the theory of decision-making under risk. That's the fun part. Um, I'll conclude with, some, with a specific example that comes from our work, uh, talking about uh, how that's challenging the conclusion that humans are irrational decision-makers by incorporating evolutionary ideas into economic and decision theory. So, my first statement, humans are adapted to environmental uncertainty. Uh, here's a, a temperature series, a six, six million year reconstructed temperature series for the mean global temperature. And there are two things that are really remarkable if you follow this plot. We're, we're six million years out here, present here. And first of all, the planet has cooled considerably in the last six million years, okay? The second thing is that it has gotten way more variable in the last two or three million years. And I want to point out that humans appeared first, our genus appeared first, right about here, right about the time that things started to go down. Okay, we are actually adapted to a cold planet. You know, when, when people say, oh, but the world has been much warmer, global warming will be fine. I'm like, okay, maybe. <laughs> My people were adapted to Northern Europe and it's cold there, right? The whole planet is cold, uh, and that's, that's where our species evolved. Um, there's a huge amount of variation. There are 41,000-year cycles called the Milankovitch cycles. There are 100,000-year cycles. There is actually decadal-scale variation that we can recover in these temperature proxy records from, from lake sediments. And we can see that the, the mean temperature in parts of East Africa varied by as much as 4 or 5 degrees centigrade on a decadal scale, so within an individual's lifetime. Incredibly variable. Okay? And one of the big consequences for this is that we went from being forest-living critters, like this chimp in the Nyungwe Forest in, in Rwanda, living an ever-moist, you know, uh, arboreal li lifestyle, onto the savanna woodlands. And this is a picture from Serengeti National Park in Tanzania. Coming out of the forest and, and from, a, a, from the trees down onto the ground on a, on a savanna carries with it a number of challenges. The obvious ones are all the big, scary predators that you see in Serengeti. Uh, we've got leopards, we've got hyenas, we've got lions. But the thing that I think makes the biggest difference uh, for uh, the overall um, sort of ecology of an organism is, has to do with the distribution of food. And here's a chimpanzee in Kibale National Park, and it's sitting in a fig tree, and it's really happy because it's been gorging itself on figs. You can't really see it. It looks like it's kind of going like this. It's like it's, like it's got chewing tobacco in there because it has filled its mouth with figs, and it is <laughs> squeezing the goodness out of them, and it will squeeze it for an hour or two and then spit out the pulp, okay? Um, there are literally hundreds of thousands of figs in this one tree. This is an enormous tree the size of a huge live oak. And there, there are you know, certainly hundreds of thousands of fruits in there. And this group of chimps, the Kanyawara chimps in, in, in Kibale National Park, fed in this tree for about a week. Okay? 
This is what tropical evermorse forests are like. They have fig trees that have hundreds of thousands of figs in them that fruit all year long asynchronously. There, there's enormous distributions of lots of good food. When you go out onto the savanna, while there's plenty of food on the hoof, if you can get it, the vegetable matter and, the, and certainly fruit, and, and you know, the apes are, are, are frugivores. We're, we're adapted to eating fruit. There's very little fruit, and the big sort of resource that you have to fill in in the hard times is somewhat less delicious than a fig. Um, it's, it's this underground storage area, and these are tubers that were gathered by uh, Hadza hunter-gatherers in northern Tanzania by my former postdoc. Uh, this is Brian Wood working with the Hadza, showing them a picture book of Hadza. Um, Brian's, at, <laughs> Brian's at Yale now. Um, uh, yeah, so we moved into a much more uncertain environment. So what are, what are the adaptations? Just very briefly, we eat a crappy diet. We can, ha we can actually handle a really crappy diet. And, and I say that knowing that it's actually a complicated statement. We can, eat those, we can eat those tubers only if we cook them. They're too tough for, for us to eat. And so eating those tubers clearly went hand in hand with developing control of fire. Okay? And notice that these things, they're not just like roasted you know, slowly. They burn them. They burn the crap out of them. And they get, they get black. Uh, blackened tubers in the bush. Uh, so we've got a, a, an expanded diet greatly helped by the fact that we can control fire. We've got extreme mobility. Hunter-gatherer groups of humans have home range sizes that are anywhere from 10 to 100 times bigger than chimpanzees. And when things get really bad, we have this capacity as a species to just get up and move continents. We are super mobile, okay? But the thing that really, I think, uh, gets back to the, the economics, right, is this amazing capacity we have to share food. And it's, it's really hard for, to explain to non-anthropologists how important food sharing is and to, to people who don't think about uh, how animals don't share food, right, that this is so fundamental to what we do. We, we just take it for granted that we eat with strangers all the time or, or with non-relatives. So this is a, a network. The, the circles... Are, uh, represent individuals. They're individuals in an Inuit village in Nunavik in northern Canada, the Canadian Arctic. Uh, and the lines that are drawn between them are events where one individual shared food with another one in this hunting and fishing village. And these data were gathered by PhD student Elspeth Reedy, who happens to be at the back of the room. Uh, and if you're interested in this work, it's amazing. I, I recommend you talk to her after, after the talk. Um, so this is another great way of managing risk and uncertainty is that by sharing, by aggregating, we can, we can smooth over the individual variation in, in our foraging success. But the thing that I'm going to talk about has to do with what we call life history. Uncertainty is embodied fundamentally in our reproductive biology. This is a picture, again, that Brian took of three generations of Hadza. We've got the granny in the middle, her adult daughter, and, and her four children. Okay, and this encapsulates a lot that's weird about humans, okay? One is that this woman here is post-reproductive, right? She, she has stopped having her own kids, um, and, the, and she's alive, right? And the great thing about that is that she now has the capacity to invest in these grandkids. And one of the consequences of that is that she can have more kids, even though not even the oldest one 
is even close to ready to being independent. There's no other animal that does this, by the way, that has multiple differentially vulnerable kids at the same time. A chimpanzee, you know, the mom raises the kid to, to weans it at five, and then basically the kid travels with her, but she does nothing more economically. She does not transfer food. She doesn't do anything really to help it other than moral support, right? Being there, being there in, in a group. Whereas humans, right, we have, we have a, a brood of all sorts of different uh, degrees of vulnerability. This is, this is a, it's a crazy feature of our life cycle. Uh, I'll show you a little data based on about 1,400 mammal species. And I'll just tell you that pretty much all biological quantities vary system, systematically with body size. Big things live longer than small things. Small things reproduce faster than big things, okay? Redder primates, blacker non-primate mammals, age at first reproduction. Uh, might as well go to the next one, right? Green arrows are humans. Okay, you can see the green dot. So humans have a much later age at first reproduction than other mammals are body size, okay? We also have a much later adult lifespan, so starting from age at first breeding and going until maximum lifespan, much longer than other mammals are body size. Our fertility, while lower than, uh, than lots of other things, like you know, pigs and, and, and uh, other ruminants you know, that are about our body size, it's kind of clustered with other, with other primates, basically the great apes. Um, you don't see the, the really remarkable differences until you combine these parameters. The life history theorist Rick Charnoff showed that you can take combinations of the previous two data sets and you can combine them. And in all mammals, the numbers tend to be about the same, right? They're, they're, they're invariant. And we can see that this number of relative lifespan with orangutans, gorillas, chimpanzees, and humans, these are the great apes, right? Uh, those numbers are incredibly similar for, for everyone, including humans, okay? This is the ratio of age at first reproduction to adult lifespan. The second one, this reproductive power, it's age at first reproduction times our annual fertility. Uh, it's a little more variable, obviously, for the other great apes, but look at humans. This is bigger than any other mammal by a long shot. So we live a really long time, and we have a ton of reproductive power. We have lots of babies for how long we live and how late we develop, okay? Humans are bet hedgers, okay? The long generation length that comes from a late age at first re reproduction and a long reproductive span, coupled with the high fertility, mean that humans can sample multiple temporal environments. The environment is doing this, right? It's all over the place. You sample it at multiple times, eight times, right? The Ache hunter-gatherers, we have a really good age-specific fertility data on them. Uh, their total fertility rates are about eight, right? They're a little lower for some of the savanna hunter-gatherers. Um, but they're anywhere from, you know, four, four to eight is, is pretty common for a natural fertility hunter-gatherer population. You have eight opportunities to get it right twice because it takes two to stay in the evolutionary game. It takes three to increase, right? Because we're diploid organisms, we need to make two copies of our haploid DNA when we reproduce. So hedging is the classic racetrack strategy of ensuring against total loss. Um, you simply put, you place at least a small bet on every horse in every race. What does that mean? It guarantees you that you're going to lose money in every race. 
but it also means that you won't lose all your money ever, okay? Because some horse has to win. Um, and hopefully, you don't just always, you know, get, get it randomly, right? Hopefully, sometimes you get the, the winning horse and you place more money on that one. And so you actually win the lottery in addition to avoiding the catastrophic uh, failure of losing all your money. The essence of bet hedging is trading off the mean for a reduction in variance. And that's an important concept that will come up. Why do we hedge? We hedge to avoid extinction. Okay? Humans inherited a legacy of slow reproduction and low, low population growth. So bear in mind that we have very high reproductive power that I showed you, but we, we come from a lineage of things that grow at a, a maximum when everything is really working out well at about 1% annually. Throw in some, some, some random shocks to that, and you're really in danger of extinction. As humans moved onto the more variable savanna woodland environments, they experienced greater variance, which makes extinction more likely. This is where these adaptations to uncertainty come from. Okay? And just a, uh, oh. Yeah, all right. <laughs> Sorry. Um, <clears throat> Means overestimate growth processes. I'll just show you one more little quick demonstration, mathy type demonstration. Um, what I've got here is I've plotted, I've taken a mean growth rate. I've taken a, a model that includes juvenile for, uh, survivorship, adult survivorship, and fertility. And fitness is essentially a product of the three of those. Okay? And I've taken the mean value of those and I've plotted that. And what you see is it, it, the, the product of those is greater than one. It, you get exponential growth. Okay? And that's with the mean values of all those things staying constant. Now what I do is I run a simulation where rather than, than um, using the, the exact same values every time, I use the same mean juvenile survivorship, but I let it vary from moment to moment. Okay? Same mean, but now there's variance. There was no variance before, now there's variance. And I, I swear, this was the very first simulation I ran on this. Because they will all do this. They will all fall short of that line. And it's a peculiarity of, of these types of growth processes with variability, that they will almost always fall short of the line of, of the, the mean value. Okay? And it's because it, it matters about when you take the mean. right? And, and that's, I can talk about that later. Um, it's really important to remember that fitness is, a, is multiplicative. Right? Each year... Your, your lineage grows or doesn't, right? And you need to avoid, because it's multiplicative, it's, it, you multiply every year. Anytime you hit a zero, you're done. It's game over, okay? So uh, another important point is that fitness is a rate of increase. You need to keep up with the Joneses, as it were. Uh, in order for an organism to remain in the evolutionary game and to increase its relative share if it gets, if it gets lucky, it needs to match the marginal growth rate its marginal growth rate to the prevailing growth rate of the population. If you invest uh, in a fund that's growing slower than the economy, you're effectively losing money, right? It's the same thing with fitness. Um, okay. So uncertainty, I hope I've at least put in your mind this idea that uncertainty is really important for understanding human adaptation. Uh, the ability to make sensible decisions over uncertain outcomes is embodied in our very reproductive biology, and it profoundly affects uh, lots of other things, ranging from uh, our metabolic physiology um, to aspects of culture to our institutions to our social behavior, 
huge ramifications uh, dealing with uncertainty. Um, okay, so I'm going to tell you now that humans are risk-averse. I've put an asterisk there because not in the sense that we psychologically necessarily are, but in the fact that nature pays out its gains in a decelerating way. What does that have to do with risk aversion? In a word, everything. But let's step through the logic here. <coughs> there goes the voice. <clears throat> My wife's family's from Oregon. We go up and we berry pick a lot. I picked berries when I was a kid a lot. I actually asked Stanford students about this. I'm like, when I teach in the Humbio core and they're like anywhere from 150 to 300 students, how many people have been berry picking, right? And you'd be amazed at how few people raise it, how few 18-year-olds, 19-year-olds raise their hands. They, they kids today don't know berry picking, right? Um, <clears throat> but you go into a berry patch, you're hungry, right? You're, and you've got all these beautiful blueberries. You start eating. Right? Your utility is high because your rate of berry consumption is very high because they're all, I mean, look at them all. They're just pregnant on the, on the vine there. It's not a vine, but, you know, the bush. Um, and after a while, you deplete the patch locally, right? There aren't as many berries right there. So you start to have to reach further. And eventually, if you're like me, you lie down on the ground and you reach up under. And you're... We call it the, the rate of gain at any point in time, the marginal utility, right? And the marginal utility, it's increasing, but it decelerates, okay? Because it gets harder and harder to pick berries. Your rate goes down. This is the way nature pays out gains. Um, and this has profound implications for, um, uh, for risk aversion. If you have a curve, a utility curve that looks like this, you're risk averse. Because anywhere on this curve, if you were to play, if you were to flip a coin and go up by a unit, if you got heads and down by a unit, if you got tails, there'd be an asymmetry between the, the upside and the downside loss, right? The upside gain and the downside loss. And it's just because of the function of the, of the shape of the curve. Um, my read of this is that economists typically attribute risk averse utilities to psychology. Um, but they're actually intrinsically part of the natural world. Um, when faced by, uh, with a curve that looks like this, a risk-averse agent is frequently willing to pay insurance uh, um, against getting this, this, this bad outcome, right? So you, you'll, you'll pay a little bit to get something that's higher than the minimum but lower than the maximum. And we call that the risk premium in this case, the average of the utilities of the two of x0 and x1 is, on that, is where the two red lines come together. If we take that line and go horizontally back to the utility curve, that should be theoretically the, the, the amount that you'd be willing to pay, the difference between those two, in insurance against the catastrophic outcome. It's called the risk premium. There's expected utility, there's the risk-free equivalent. Okay? This is important because we end up... This turns out to be what Kahneman and Tversky uh, are plotting in their cumulative prospect theory. And it's also the thing that we use uh, to, to get some traction on understanding how selection is going to work on preferences. So here's Ken Arrow, Stanford's own. Uh, the canonical theory of, of, risk, of risk aversion, decision-making under risk, it involves uh, the curvature of the utility curve. And let me just go back real quick. If we were to take this curvy curve right, and flatten it out, into a line, there wouldn't be an asymmetry between the upside gain and the downside loss, right? 
you'd be risk neutral in that case. And as we start to curve it out a little bit, you become more and more risk averse. That asymmetry grows. And, and uh, Arrow and Pratt recognized that this was a, a, a nice way to be able to measure uh, risk preferences. And so how risk averse you are, it depends on the curvature of your utility function. The more curvature means the more asymmetry between the upside and the downside means the more risk averse you are. Okay, so here's a graphical representation of the standard model of, of, of economic utility. You have these things we call lotteries. These are essentially decisions over variable outcomes. Hunting for lizards, hunting for kangaroos, planting maize, planting a cash crop. How much of each of these should I do? It could be zero, it could be entirely, right? What matters is that I want to maximize this thing up at the top called utility, which is a way of aggregating all these economic decisions, these variable economic decisions, and I want to maximize that thing up there. Now, when an, when an evolutionary biologist starts thinking about economic decisions, the first sort of natural thing to do is to say, well, you know, you call it utility, we call it fitness, right? But there's, there are a couple problems with that, and that was actually where we first went. Um, there are a couple problems that have been pointed out to us by some helpful colleagues and some not-so-nice colleagues sometimes, but um, <laughs> the first is that no one but sociopaths actually thinks about maximizing their fitness. Every, every evolutionary biologist has known that one guy. It's always a guy who's like, you know, I'm going to be maximizing my fitness tonight. And you're just like, oh, God, do you have to? Right? We actually generally pursue proximate goals, right? We, we, we have things that we care about. We have love interests, right? We, we love our children. We, we seek sexual gratification. We, uh, we, we like to eat delicious food. I think Rose said, well, what did you say? You said right on this floor? We, you said something sort of saucy. We, we like to eat and fuck, something like that. Yeah, I think that was the way you put it. Um, <laughs> And the way I say that is that we, you know, we pursue proximate goals. <laughs> the, second, the second problem with substituting fitness for, for utility is that even if we wanted to maximize our fitness, fitness is not something we actually have access to. It's something that plays out at a temporal scale that's greater than the individual lifespan. And so it's a terrible thing to try to, re to uh, respond adaptively to in changing conditions. So is there a way that we can build in proximate goals into an evolutionary model? And that's exactly what we did. And that's our figure here that Otto drew. Maybe not the most complex figure he's ever drawn. But um, on the bottom, again, we have these economic decisions that you're making, right? These, these lotteries, they're, they're decisions over variable outcomes. And then these get aggregated by things that we've called utilities here. But I think in many ways, you can think of them as motivational systems sexual gratification, satiety, love, love of children, whatever. Um, and then at the top level, these utilities are then feeding into fitness, right? They're associated with fitness. Clearly, if you have sex and you eat food, you know, you, you have the chance of reproducing and surviving. That's good for your fitness, right? So that's great. There's a problem, though. Here's little Susie with her lovely family. And Susie's a bright girl, and her family would like to send her to college, but Susie doesn't have, her, Susie's family doesn't have a lot of money, 
And they're worried about the rising cost of tuition. You know, Stanford costs, what, $45,000 a year, $50,000 a year. Now, of course, if you make under $120,000 a year, it's essentially free. But, you know, it's, in many ways, it's more expensive to go to Berkeley. Um, but anyways, I digress. Um, um, they would like to, they, they have the money in a piggy bank, but the piggy bank, you know, the money isn't going to grow. They should really put it in some sort of an, a market account where they will get interest and this money can grow and they can have a, a nest egg to uh, send Susie to college. The problem is, like me, like probably most people in this room, they don't know anything about investing. And what they need to do is they need to enlist an agent to help them out. <laughs> and he looks like a nice man. Maybe he can help. This, of course, is Bernie Madoff, and he didn't exactly help anyone. Um, the problem is that when the principal, Susie, and the agent, Bernie, have very different incentives, right? There's, there's what's, what economists call a moral hazard. He can pursue his incentives to the detriment of her. And so this principal-agent problem, there's, they call it in, in the UK principal-agent maths, right? It, it's a framework for aligning the incentives of the principal and the agent, setting out the rules of the game such that self-interest on the part of the agent works to the advantage of the principal. So we took this framework and we applied it to our hierarchical model, right? Because you want to make sure that your principal fitness is served by its agents, these proximate motivating factors. And it turns out it provides exactly the kind of constraints that we need to write down equations and solve them and come up with, with analytical results. This is Mike Price measuring a tree in a, in a forest in Southeast Asia. And Mike was interested in uh, understanding the, the, uh, the development, the evolution of sago palm farming. And I, I'd love to talk about sago palm for hours, but I can't. Uh, a single sago palm will yield upwards of 2 million calories worth of starch, which is a staple for many of the people in New, in New Guinea and the, and the, Western, uh, the Western Malay archipelago. Uh, the trick is it takes 25 years to grow. Right? And any sort of standard economic model of time preference, is, it's going to be very difficult to make it say, yes, go for Sago, rather than immediate consumption. Right? And, and so this is where the, this idea came from. And we actually, um, economists name results after themselves. Anthropologists don't get to do that. So we name our results after our, our study systems. So uh, you'll see in a moment. Here's Mike. He's also an archaeologist working in Jordan here. And he derived this in the bush. He, he came out to an internet cafe and sent me this. And he was like, hey, check this out. It was, it was kind of uglier than this. I, I've prettied up the equation, but it, the essence was there. Um, and the basic point is that it generalizes Arrow-Pratt. There's the curvature of Arrow-Pratt. But secondly, there's a curvature of fitness at, at that second level, right? The, how that is changing and how... Uh, risk-averse you are evolutionarily because of where you are uh, in a wealth distribution or something matters. And most importantly of all, that interacts with marginal utility. So that the key is that risk aversion and economic gain interact in a nonlinear way. Where have we seen nonlinear weightings before? Well, here's Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky. And their original paper, the 1979 um, uh, Prospect Theory paper, probably the most cite highly cited paper 
in the behavioral sciences of the 20th century. Um, and here's their update to it in 1993, and, and it turns out to be easier to work with mathematically. Um, we've got overweighting of losses, we've got underweighting of, of moderate gains, and it turns out that what they're plotting here is uh, the, um, uh, <laughs> the risk premium that's modified by the, the size of the prospect. Okay, it's, a, it's this nonlinear weighting, and it corresponds almost perfectly to the, what the, the curve that comes out from, from uh, our hierarchical model. Okay? So we like to think of this as this was an, a phenomenological model that Kahneman and Tversky fit to data based on experiments that were going on at Stanford and at, and at Berkeley. Um, we've provided a theory to explain where that curve comes from. Because remember, there are an infinite number of, of nonlinear curves that we can use to come up with a value function. We think we have a reason for the very particular form of prospect theory. So that's one big result that comes out of this. Uh, I'm, I'm going to share, share one more. And it has to do with what the risk preferences of the poor are. And this is a big question in development economics right now, right? Because we've got these development agencies that want to use entrepreneur, entrepreneurial ideas to bring people out of poverty. And that, that involves a, a preference for risk, OK? Uh, our ideas about how the poor feel about uh, risk probably date back to this, this uh, very important paper by Jimmy Savage, once again, and University of uh, Chicago free market guru Milton Friedman in 1948, an early paper for Friedman. And they pointed out that people's utility functions may actually be S-shaped rather than just the, the monotonic curved ones that I was showing you. Up here, they're risk-averse. And another cool thing that they pointed out is at very high levels, when you have an S-shaped curve, it flattens out. And so the very wealthy are actually risk-neutral, right? at least on the margins. Right? They're not going to bet the farm, right? but they will, at the margins, make a big bet uh, because you know, they, they're not worried about risk. Um, but at the lowest levels of consumption, right, the, at the poor, uh, at the, the poor uh, should be risk-seeking. Why? Because economically, they have nothing to lose, right? You're at the bottom, you might as well, a, a small gain will give you a big boost in utility. This will be a convex increase here, okay? I think that that's where a lot of the, the reasoning over the risk preferences of the poor come from. And our model speaks to this. One of the things that we see uh, is that, so this is a, a, a standard economic analysis of, of a, a utility function that's shaped like this. It's curved down like the blueberry patch. Uh, and it's curved down in such a way that the risk aversion, the Arrow-Pratt measure, is constant for, for all levels of, of resource consumption, okay? And that, so the black line is the constant absolute risk aversion model. We use the same utility model that under the, 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 the orthodox case gives you that, that straight line. And what we see is, and we call it the Sago-Palm model, right? We name it after our study, study topic. Um, as you get poorer, your risk aversion as measured by the, uh, by the coefficient of absolute risk aversion. Uh, well, it's actually, the, it's actually the, not that, sorry. The, the, um, it's, it's actually the risk premium that got mislabeled. Uh, 
Sorry. So that's the risk premium on the, on the y-axis and the resource level. That may be why it was a little confusing. Anyways, that increases as you become poorer. Why? Because in an evolutionary framework, right, these multiplicative things, fitness, survival is, is multiplicative, your reproductive success in a generation is multiplicative. As you approach zero, as you approach destitution, one small shock can put you over the edge of, of individual or lineage extinction. You should be super risk averse. Okay? And one of the things that's interesting about this is that I think it actually plays in pretty well to some of the really great work that's coming out of the Poverty Lab at MIT. Uh, Banerjee and Duflo write in the conclusion of their book, Poor Economics, are there really a billion barefoot entrepreneurs as the leaders of MFIs and socially minded business gurus seem to believe? Or is this just an illusion stemming from a confusion about what we call an entrepreneur? Their argument, which I find very compelling, is that the poorest poor uh, are entrepreneurial because they have to be. They don't have any choice. They would much rather have a government job than be a small business owner, right? Um, and I think that our, that our framework uh, sheds some light on, on where that, that sensibility comes from. So just to conclude, I think it's really important to bear in mind what problems the human mind has evolved to, to, to deal with, what, what the economic problems are uh, in, in a long-term sense, uh, and what the, the sort of regularities have been. We need to keep in mind Herbert Simon's scissors metaphor. We can't understand one without the other, the computational capacities and the task environment. Uh, secondly, uncertainty changes decision problems qualitatively. It isn't just that it adds noise to things, it's that it changes the outcome altogether. And I haven't talked so much about the, the technical work on uncertainty, but there is, there is some on that too, and, it's, and I think it's, it's pretty cool. Um, uh, the third thing is that seemingly irrational decisions may actually be rational if we consider the right objective function. Uh, and I want to conclude basically by saying that I think we need to be careful with our diagnoses of irrationality. Whenever one group of people calls another group irrational, bad things frequently follow. And I think that that, that group could include calling all people uh, irrational. You know, you could, you could think of it as paving the road to paternalism. Lots of bad things happen when people get called irrational. Um, and so I think we need to actually be really careful about it. In part because the people who do the, the irrational naming or irrational shaming or whatever, right, tend to be systematically one group uh, uh, and frequently the people who are deemed irrational uh, are a less powerful group, shall we say. Um, so with that, uh, I will thank you, uh, call up Mary Kay, and then take some questions. Thanks. So, of course, um, all this talk about risk aversion and I think the way you put it was the ability to make sensible decisions with uncertain outcomes. We saw this graph where people who were not the poorest but also not the wealthiest should be risk averse. Yeah. So then how do we look at more than 60 million people voting for change without knowing what the change is going to be? Yeah. No, it's a really interesting question. And it's... And let me tell you, I, I mean, it's, it's brutal trying to write a book that, that's arguing about the fundamental rationality of the human mind 
in a year where Donald Trump gets elected president, you know? <laughs> it's, it's rough, and I get this question a lot. I, one of the things that I think is, is interesting is that I, I really think that there is a very strong faith in, in institutions that, I, that I, I'm not sure that people uh, are evaluating the risk properly. Um, that the, the same people who say that they want, that, that they, they hate government or whatever, or actually have a great deal of faith that the institutions will somehow get it right once an agent of change is there. Uh, yeah, like and, he and doesn't mean this. Yeah, this yeah. There's, a, there's an awful lot of, of uh, apologizing going on for that. Um, I, as we've talked about, uh, I also think that so the working title of, of this book that I'm, I'm writing is called The Most Rational People in the World. And I'm not sure it's a good title, but it's what the working title keeps coming back to. And I actually have a very particular group of people in mind when I think of uh, the most rational people in the world. Perhaps paradoxically, they tend to be pretty poor. And their, their, their decision-making is, is, is an enforced rationality. They often are in subsistence populations. So you want to find some, some really just coolly calculating... Uh, incredibly savvy, quantitatively savvy people, look at, look at some, some peasant farmers or some hunter-gatherers. And so we live in, in the U.S. in a very complex place where it's hard to infer causality sometimes. Um, and I think that that has a lot to do with it. Yeah. I, I wish I had a good answer to that question. I have but, maybe one or two more questions yeah. and then we'll open it up. So start thinking of your own questions. So one is, we were talking about maximum <coughs> possibility that you'll survive and that you'll be able to pass on your genes. So you need at least two offspring mm -hmm. and then they need to have offspring and so forth. But in the modern world, the more women in particular are educated, the fewer children families tend to have yeah. and the children are healthy and, and they grow up. They don't always have kids. They might choose not to get married. They may choose uh, to get married, but not to have children. So, is modern life like maybe moving too fast to, or, or is modern life moving too fast for the evolutionary impulse to keep up? Yeah, I mean, I'm, that's, a, that's a common criticism when, when people apply evolutionary concepts to sort of contemporary human behavior. I'm a, I'm a bit of a skeptic that, that people on average are behaving um, against their evolutionary interests. There, there's, so there's always the possibility that some people are behaving irrationally, right, and, and are, are, are selected out. It, it, that, that's part of the whole process, right? You have to have variability uh, in, in behavior for selection to work in the first place. Um, the second thing is, I think that the reduction that you see in, in, for, in the often dramatic reduction you see in fertility following uh, the education of women is, is a very sensible thing um, because you only need the two kids, right? And, and, and if you can lavish investment on them, if you can send them to school, you increase their economic standing. And one of the things that's really interesting, and this is a, a real sort of frontier for work on human life history evolution, is, is understanding how, um, uh, how, you know, sort of classical life history theory, the evolutionary theory, uh, interacts with economic theory. And one of the things that we've, we've learned recently is that economic decisions tend to trump in the short term. Like you, you, if, if there's a trade-off between your individual fitness and your economic success of your family, often the, the economic success of the family wins out. Now, I tend to think in a broader multi-generational 
uh, uh, way. And so I'm like, does that actually average out over the longer run? That if you make those economic trade-offs in this generation, you're going to reap a benefit a few generations down the line? I don't know. That's, a, that's an empirical question. Okay. So, so one other question. This yeah. is very long-term. And that is, you know, we saw on your graphs that um, humans are especially risk-averse when there's a risk of extinction. Yeah. So why aren't more people conscious of the need to act against climate change? Yeah. I think because there isn't that, that visceral fear quite yet. I mean, we know that people take it more seriously at, during a hot summer, right? And, and, uh, and when the weather is weird, people are much more likely to, to actually respond favorably in, in, in uh, surveys and that sort of thing. And so I think that what, what, seeing a consequence that you can fit into the narrative of climate change, you know, activates that emotional response. And emotions are super important, right? They're really important for actually getting people to care about problems. So this almost it. seems like the yeah. thinking fast and slow thing. That it is a little bit, but I, 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 I come back to, um, I, I come back to, to uh, uh, Descartes' error, right? This, this idea that, um, and, and I'm now blanking on his name. I knew it was going to happen. <laughs> Help me. Damasio, thank you. Antonio Damasio, which is an amazing book, right, that, that sort of breaks down this distinction between the, the emotional brain and the, and the rational brain. Right. What, what matters for making a good decision is to have some emotional valence to it. And so I think that adding that emotional valence actually makes people often better decision makers. And you think also... They can the, get carried away as well. If the horizon is way far out, you're thinking... No, well, absolutely. Gonna, yeah. Yeah, yeah. You're worried about your survival now. And yes, absolutely. Yeah. Okay, so... Uh, we have a question here. So, uh, one question on your diagram. I was wondering if you could explain the bottom nodes there and how some of them lead to more than one parent and one, the one off on the left only has yeah, one. Yeah, so yeah. It's, it's super schematic. I, these, are, these are lotteries, you know, in the sense that the hunting for lizards, you know, it's, it's a decision made over a variable, an outcome that has a, that's variable, right? Like, you go out lizard hunting, you don't know if you're going to get two or you're going to get 12, right? And so that's all that these, these bottom nodes are. They're the lotteries. And you can imagine that some of those are going to affect some of the motivational subsystems and not others. Like, what car you drive, you know, if you're, if you're making a decision about what car to buy, it may affect, I don't know, your reproductive, you know, your, 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 your ability to acquire a mate, right? But it may not affect your ability to uh, uh, put on weight, you know, I, I don't know. So it, it, it's meant to be very schematic in that sense. But it's, you know, some of these things are going to be more salient to certain motivational subsystems. And there are obviously more than two. And we make lots more than four economic decisions at any given time, too, right? Does that, does that make yeah, sense? Yeah. Um, and we've got one more question. Unfortunately, we have limited time, but Jamie's going to be sticking around and oh, yeah. would love for you to come up and, and talk with him more. Uh, I know there's like a whole other chunk of slides you could potentially show people after the talk. Um, thank it you so much. It could have been Jim. a three-hour talk, yeah. We have one more question right here. I guess the, what I'm, I'm concerned with is that um, the risk preferences are a function of people understanding what the actual risks are versus yeah. their perceptions. No, right. And you have a whole series of educational systems yeah. where, for example, uh, 
you know, the head of the Republican Party is speaking out that evolution should be taught in schools as the thing because that's what the founders of our country, ignoring the fact that Franklin was a, you know, probably a, uh, an atheist or whatever. But so how do you reconcile this long-term tension between yeah. theological belief-based systems which inherently deny the uh, the need for proof because none of them do because Mary the mother of Jesus was born of another virgin herself yeah. and you go I mean all the religions have this whole conundrum I mean uh, and uh, the the scientific tradition where you actually have all these fabulous scientific instruments that and, and in fact inherent in the scientific tradition is the fact is that look we know we don't have the right answer but we're getting closer so uh, yeah so i mean really good points and and one of those that, that you mentioned is is uh you know when you're when you're talking about straight risk aversion you know th there's a difference between risk and uncertainty and risk you have you have variable outcomes but you actually know both the distribution of the outcomes and their probabilities, right? And then it becomes, you know, not a trivial matter, but a pretty straightforward matter to figure out what the optimal solution is. In uncertainty, you don't actually know what the probabilities are. You may not even know what all the outcomes are, right? And this is what's sometimes known as true Knightian un uncertainty. Um, and there's some sort of paradoxical consequences to uncertainty, and, and one of them is that it's sometimes you do better when you don't reason uh, terribly hard. And, and you can think of a lot of institutions as actually building in some, some stuff that may seem crazy, but actually in the long run is very successful. I mean, that's the thing, is that, is that to a rationalist, religion seems, uh, you know, kind of shockingly irrational, right? But, but religion has been incredibly successful at spreading in a, in a cultural evolutionary dynamic. And the practitioners of particular religions have been incredibly successful in a demographic and an evolutionary sense. They have succeeded, despite the fact that it seems irrational. So, you know, the, it's, it's, it's possibly a paradox of dealing with uncertainty, that sometimes it's best to actually black box things and, and leave it to our, uh, both our intuitions and our, our institutions. So I have one last question for you, and that is, I'm wondering if you can talk a bit about the kinds of reactions you've gotten from economists, from... <laughs> behavioral economist. Yeah, uh, so mostly positive. I'm just waiting for the ax to fall. Um, people, you know, like at Casvis last year, they, they were super like excited about it. Maybe they were just being polite. I have some friends who are economists. I tend to be friends with the marginal economists, you know, the people who work on like healthcare and development and stuff and, and, and they're, they're into it. Um, yeah. You know, people always push back, right? And, and that's great. Uh, uh, but for the most part, we've, we've gotten a, a pretty good response. And you're working on your book now? And yeah. When and we have we, a... Yeah. We hope to read it. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. Uh, within two years. Okay, great. I, I know that most people, like, write the book and then they give the, the public talk, but... No, but it's yeah. fascinating to hear a work in progress. Yeah. Jamie Jones, thank you so yeah, much for joining for us. <laughs> <laughs> they
Thank you, Mary Kay. Uh, I want to say a couple quick thanks. You. First of all, thank you to you guys here for being a great um, audience. Um, thanks to the folks that are listening to the stream, long now members listening from as far away as New Zealand tonight. So we're excited about that. Thanks to Jamie for giving a great talk. And Mary Kay and Jamie, I'd like to give you both uh, long now challenge coins to thank you for uh, coming here and, and giving us a great program tonight. Let's give a big round of applause. If you enjoyed this talk, check out previous episodes with Neil Stevenson, Stuart Brand, Kim Stanley Robinson, and many more. Find them on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or wherever you like to listen. The Long Now Foundation is a member-supported nonprofit dedicated to fostering long-term thinking and responsibility. Long Now members make everything we do possible. Learn more at longnow.org.